NASCAR season is here, and everyone on the Toyota racing team is doing their part to perform at the highest level. From driver Ty Gibbs to amateur musician Russell Viper, who's working on the perfect pre-race pump-up track for the team. Start those Camrys up! Yeah! To accomplish greater things this year, everyone plays a part. Be part of the action at toyota.com slash racing. Toyota, let's go places. NASCAR is a registered trademark of National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing, Inc. This NASCAR season, every member of the Toyota racing team is doing their part to take the trophy home. Like sixth grader Melissa Kowalski, who changes true to true X on every true false quiz she takes. All my teachers are Martin Truex Jr. fans now. Keep up the great work, Melissa. To accomplish greater things this year, everyone plays a part. Be part of the action at toyota.com slash racing. Toyota, let's go places. NASCAR is a registered trademark of National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing, Inc. The following is a production of the Motor Racing Network, the voice of NASCAR. The Motor Racing Network presents NASCAR Live. Have a nice, smooth day and try to be there when it counts. Here he comes, Kyle Busch, for the final time of the long pond straightaway. The only other driver that can take it from him is Kyle Larson. Kyle Busch across the tunnel, turn for the final time. And has a healthy lead off of turn number two for the final time. Now Kyle Busch slows a bit into turn number three, has the entire length of the short shoot between himself and Kyle Larson. It's Bush off turn three. Kyle Bush with only fourth gear comes off turn three, checkered flag in the air, and Kyle Bush wins at Pocono. NASCAR Live is brought to you by Whelan Engineering, a global leader in the emergency warning industry. Trusted to perform since 1952 by Xfinity XFi, internet that's more than just fast. Xfinity, proud premier partner of NASCAR. And by Blue Emu Maximum Pain Relief, the official pain relief cream of the Motor Racing Network. Blue Emu is family-owned and manufactured here in America. It works fast, and you won't stink. From the MRN Studios in Concord, North Carolina, here is your host, Mike Bagley. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of NASCAR Live here on the Motor Racing Network. Mike Bagley and the entire MRN crew. NASCAR is headed out west to Los Angeles to kick off the season with Bush Lake Clash at the L.A. Coliseum. And we have a full show for you today. One of the drivers getting ready to saddle up in 2022 is Kyle Busch. He sat down with our Steve Post ahead of his 18th season in the NASCAR Cup Series. We'll take you into that conversation. Also, former Clash winner Eric Jones is going to join us. We're racing inside of a stadium this weekend in L.A. We're going to take a look at the history of racing inside stadiums and, big shocker, it's not necessarily a new concept in NASCAR's history. We're going to hear about the storied history of the L.A. Coliseum. Drivers are going to preview the clash. We've got a Daytona 500 flashback, and it's a memorable one. You don't want to miss it. We have a lot on our plate here over the course of the next 60 minutes. But to get us started, as he always does, Kyle Ricky is here with the latest headlines in NASCAR Nation as the 2022 season is about to get started. Kyle? Mike, we already know that the Bushlight Clash this weekend is going to be a star-studded event with Pitbull and Ice Cube performing. But NASCAR has begun to add even more star power by announcing the first of multiple Grand Marshals. 
Former Los Angeles Rams and Pro Football Hall of Fame running back Eric Dickerson will be among them to give the command to start engines on Sunday. NASCAR will continue to unveil the list of Grand Marshals as the week goes on. We also got some new partnership news surrounding the clash today as Trackhouse Racing unveiled a deal with UFC president Dana White and his Howlerhead whiskey brand. White's company will be the primary sponsor for Ross Chastain's number one Chevrolet on Sunday. Finally, an interesting tidbit was dropped yesterday by one of the winners of the Rolex 24 at Daytona over the weekend. Multi-time Indianapolis 500 winner Elio Castroneves told Sirius XM Radio that he would like to attempt a NASCAR race sometime in the future. Castroneves specifically mentioned the Daytona 500 or one of the season's road course races. Mike. Thank you, Kyle. Coming up, we'll chat with two-time NASCAR Cup Series champion Kyle Busch and a later, a history lesson of NASCAR racing inside of stadiums. Ruoff Mortgage wants to welcome you home with their fast and stress-free mortgage process. Ruoff knows that when you're ready to move, you want to keep things moving. From the moment you start, Ruoff makes sure the process moves quickly, often twice as fast as other lenders, so you can close quickly and settle in sooner. Visit Ruoff.com to learn how you can qualify for the fastest loan of your life. That's Ruoff, R-U-O-F-F dot com. This is NASCAR Live. Now, back to Mike Bagley. Welcome back to NASCAR Live. 2022 marks Kyle Busch's 18th season in the NASCAR Cup Series. He's a two-time champion and one of the sport's biggest names. Steve Post chatted with the JGR driver ahead of this season. He talked about a variety of topics, including his son Brexton racing and what Kyle is like as a racing dad. Coming to the checkered flag, and it is not over yet. Ryan Blaney by just a car length over Chase Elliott. Back to the chicane for the final time. This will decide it for side-by-side. Elliott to the inside of Blaney. They make contact, and around goes Ryan. Chase Elliott will get away. Kyle Busch now to the inside. It's a drag race back to the checkered flag, and the winner will be Kyle Busch. This is your 18th year in Cup. Of course, you're driving a number 18 car. You haven't run all, all your cup career in the 18 car. Um, looking back at, at rookie year memories, 18 years back, what stands out that first year back with Hendrick Motorsports? Um, just the difficulty. Uh, I think the struggle in joining the cup series and going from, you know, being in the trucks, running well, going back and running ASA, coming up and running part-time Xfinity, part-time ARCA, and then getting full-time uh, Xfinity schedule and finishing second, you know, having a shot to race for a championship against um, Truex in my first year there, I was like, okay, this this is easy, you know, this this ain't that hard. All these guys, whatever, you know. And then you get to Cup and it's like a smack across the face. Um, I mean, I was 20th in points my rookie season, you know, so I was nowhere to be found. Uh, we did win twice, which in this day and age, you know, that would put you in the playoffs and have you a good, uh, really good season. Um, so that was that was probably the biggest highlight to me was just that kind of I made it moment of being able to win at California Speedway and then again being able to win at Phoenix. Um, being from the West Coast, a little ironic that I won West Coast races, so that was cool. Um, and then just you know being able to have that um, uh, that made it moment was was really really special. When you look at your career at this point to this point. Biggest win of your career. What, what would you say that has been the, the biggest win? Oh, man. Um, shoot. 
lots of them. Uh, the Brickyards, obviously, those were huge. Uh, going back-to-back on those. Should have been three in a row. Thanks, Truex. Um, the uh, the Bristol sweeps was, was big for me. Um, and then also, I think one that kind of gets a little overshadowed sometimes is the Coca-Cola 600 win. That there, at that time and point, winning the Coca-Cola 600 got me the win at every single active racetrack. You know, I checked that box of every single active racetrack, boom, right there. Now, we did have the Roval later that year, but at that moment in time, boom, it was done. I wanted every single track. So that, to me, was um, was one that gets a little uh, forgotten about. 18 years, um, you know, you're probably not going to go another 18. So we're in the second half of the career, I would, I would say. Have you ever thought what your what your legacy what your what 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 your as, as, as you go forward what your legacy is not necessarily no um you know people ask me well when you retire how do you want to be remembered and i'm like well you want to be you want to be well liked you know and, and remembered for uh, a lot of great things which obviously uh, a lot of on-track success will help attribute to some of that positive um so I feel like that's kind of the biggest thing for me um, is just that, but then also being one that has just helped further along and develop the sport. Um, you know, whether it's been me with rule changes or safety changes or, um, you know, even bringing on younger drivers through KBM and the Toyota Driver Development Program, uh, I feel like we've, we've done uh, a lot for this sport and continuing to add to it as the years have gone on. One of the things you have going on in your life that you've been had so much fun with over the last few years is Brexton's racing. What is, it, 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 as you step back and look at that, what's it been like for you just as a dad to watch him develop as a racer? I mean, the development's been huge. You know, when we used to go to Millbridge, we'd go three laps down in a heat race, and they're only eight laps long. Um, you know, and then um, we we were able to work with him and develop him and test with him and different stuff and just get him in different things and I remember going to, to K1, uh, the little go-kart, electric go-kart track here in Concord. And, um, you know, first time he was out there, man, I think he was making one minute and 20 second laps. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> this can be a while, you know. But uh, he's come a long, long ways. You know, now just the other day he was with some of his friends. They're 9 and 11, and he was beating those guys um, at K1. He was faster than them, you know. And then going out to the, the, the Tulsa shootout and running some of those races with the, the junior sprint class has been super fun. I, I love those cars. I think they're a great car, um, really good learning. I think the, the carts that we do is as well. You know, it's just a matter of uh, your development process and being in the next class. So it's been really, really cool to see all of that. And I've been working the last couple of weeks on um, a, a nationwide touring schedule for a six-year-old. So uh, we got a lot of races coming up this year. Mom is um, mom is going to be thrilled. Well, she's going to be thrilled. What what does that work like? Do you do you have someone that kind of tends to him while you're on the road? How how does that work with you being on the road with your real job and a real job that's going to change a little bit this year because of practice and qualifying returning? Yeah, um, I do. I have a guy who's who's hired on that works at KBM that just strictly works on Brexton stuff. Um, he also kind of fills in for some sick roles and stuff in the shop with KBM. He come from the truck team. I, I've known him for a long time. He actually worked with me at Billy, at Billy Baloo's years ago. So um, been a friend of mine for a long time, but he's helping out and doing a lot of that stuff, getting the truck and trailer where it needs to be and, and cars prepared. So um, I don't have a lot of that day-to-day stuff. But, um, you know, being at the racetrack, I really like to be. I want to be. 
And as much as I can be, I will. Um, but otherwise, it's going to be him and Samantha. You mentioned the Tulsa shootout. First time you and him were at a race racing together, I believe it was. What was that like for, for to, different divisions, I understand, at different times on the track, but to share an event like that with him? Yeah, it was fun. It was really, really cool. And, you know, we were there originally just going for him. And, um, you know, Christopher Bell called me on Friday um, of the week before and was like, hey, I got this car out there. Uh, the guy can't get here to drive it. Do you want to drive it? And I'm like, uh, hold, please. You know, you got to yeah. ask the wife and see uh, if everything's all right. And so that was my first time ever driving anything like that. But it was really, really cool to do it at a venue uh, that big. And, of course, too, with Brexton being there and him racing on the same track at the same time. So as I was getting ready to go out and getting on the grid, you know, he's coming over to me and he's like, hey, Dad, you know, make sure you try all the lines. You know, I think the high side, that could be good, but, uh, you know, you want to stay low. And so it was kind of funny. He's giving me the, the same advice back that, uh, that I give him all the time. That is really neat. I tend to I, I tend to go more dirt track racing than asphalt in my short track world. You've had a, a rich and long history on the asphalt side of it. What was what what was your take on the dirt track world, on the micro world, getting a chance to see it? You've seen it at Millbridge, it's out there when Brexton races, but getting to do it first time, just what's your what's your observation? What's your take on it? Yeah, I mean a, a lot of dirt tracks are way different. Um yeah. I've noticed that. You know, when you go pavement racing, there's pretty much a distinctive line that you're gonna run on the pavement. And you're going to set up your car for that, and you're going to try to make it as fast as you can, drive as well as you can. But in dirt racing, it's so random um, that you will literally be changing lanes almost all the time. Um, you know, so going low, going high, seeing where it's it's slicked off, and and what you have to do. And there's not there's not as much um, car prep, if you will, or science in the chassis setups. You know, like. I asked one of the guys there, it was in Brexton's class, the dad, I said, hey man, you got a pair of scales? I got to put my car on scales. I want to make some changes. I'm too loose, but I want to see what I'm doing because I haven't worked on these cars a whole lot, you know? And he goes, scales, scales, what? I've owned my car for three years. I've never put it on scales. Wow. And I was like, okay, I'm, by the time we were done with Tulsa, I had the car on scales three times just Brexton's car in one week so um, you know it's just the the, the the weirdness the difference in, in what pavement is versus dirt is keeping it in the family vein um, Kurt has joined 2311 racing what's that like to have a brother that's you, you've had a brother that's in the sport but now you have a brother that's with an aligned team what's what what's that like it's good um, you know Kurt obviously anywhere he goes he brings value and um, you know he's really really good at being able to uh, dissect the car and, and explain and, and talk about what it is and, and try to help the crew chief through some of their decision-making processes. And I think that's a trait that our dad instilled in us because I feel like I have that as well too. So to have the both of that, the both of us, I feel like that's going to be a, an added benefit. Um, you know, sometimes the, the crew chiefs or engineers, they look at me and they kind of think like, what the hell is he talking about? So to have somebody uh, that can back me up on that, you know, it's, it's going to make it... Uh, better for me hopefully but uh, also better for the whole toyota group thank you posty and thank you kyle great conversations there with nascar's only active multi-championship driver coming up we'll look at the history of racing at stadiums that goes way back and later some of nascar's biggest names preview racing at the los angeles memorial coliseum sir are you aware you were going 40 miles an hour this is a residential area. 
sure, but I'm on my lawnmower. Wait, am I getting a ticket? No, I've just never seen anyone top nine miles an hour on one of those bad boys. And mow their entire lawn in 30 seconds? What got into you? Well, it did fuel up at Sunoco this morning. At Sunoco, we know how to fuel peak performance. We've been doing it for American Racing for over 50 years. Fuel your best. NASCAR Live is brought to you by Blue Emu Maximum Pain Relief, the official pain relief cream of the Motor Racing Network. Blue Emu is family-owned and manufactured here in America. It works fast, and you won't stink. Now, back to Mike Bagley. Welcome back to NASCAR Live. This weekend's race at the L.A. Coliseum marks something race fans haven't seen in a while. Cars on track inside of a stadium. And when we say we haven't seen it in a while... We're talking decades. Dave Moody is here to give us a quick history lesson on NASCAR's history with stadiums. When NASCAR announced the 2022 Bushlight Clash would be held at the L.A. Memorial Coliseum, a lot of questions came with it. How would NASCAR pull off racing in that facility? What would the track look like? And how aggressive will the racing be? As we approach race weekend, there's a bigger question hanging over all the rest. If successful, could the L.A. Coliseum race usher in a new era of stadium racing across America for NASCAR? While we traditionally think of NASCAR racing being held at purpose-built racetracks, NASCAR has proven that it's looking beyond those limits. Stadium racing is not a new concept either. In fact, there's a history there that goes back to some of the sport's earliest days. Bowman Gray Stadium in Winston-Salem, North Carolina has previously hosted Premier Series events. The quarter-mile track around the football stadium held 29 Premier Series races from 1958 to 1971. The stadium still holds weekly race events to this day. Before the Chicago Bears called Soldier Field home, it held auto racing as well. In 1956, Fireball Roberts won a 100-mile Premier Series event at Soldier Field, beating four other eventual NASCAR Hall of Famers in a historic finish. NASCAR even held a race at a stadium built for baseball. McCormick Field, located in Asheville, North Carolina, held a Premier Series race back in 1958. In the heat races, Lee Petty's car ended up stuck nose first into one of the dugouts. NASCAR Vice President of Strategic Initiatives Ben Kennedy says they're looking at the L.A. Coliseum as an opportunity to go to different markets and not just in the United States. All eyes will be on NASCAR on February 6th as fans see an all-new type of race that could trigger potential growth for the series. If NASCAR can pull off the L.A. Coliseum, it opens up a new discussion about a whole new era of where NASCAR can go. Can you imagine seeing a car crash into a baseball dugout? Well, we won't have that to worry about this weekend. Just, just a wild thought. In general, coming up, drivers talk about racing at the L.A. Coliseum and how difficult it's going to be. And later, we'll look at the history of the L.A. Coliseum and why this race is such a big deal. Today's broadcast is brought to you by Blue Emu Maximum Pain Relief, the official pain relief cream of the Motor Racing Network. This is NASCAR Live. Now, back to Mike Bagley. Welcome back to NASCAR Live. There are tons of questions coming in to this weekend's race at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. 
And a lot of those questions revolve around how aggressive will the racing be on a quarter mile track? NASCAR's biggest drivers talked about what they expect, how they're approaching this new venue and how much carnage could ensue. Kyle Ricky has their answers. Sunday represents one of the most anticipated NASCAR races in recent memory. NASCAR will take over the L.A. Coliseum. Yes, the home of multiple Olympic Games, Super Bowls, and the USC football team. NASCAR has turned the football field into a quarter-mile asphalt oval, where all 36 chartered teams will take their shot at becoming the first winner of 2022. Before we hear what some of the drivers think about the race, let's go over the format. Saturday, the teams will practice during the morning hours before participating in single-car qualifying. That qualifying session will set the field for the heat races. On Sunday, there will be four heat races with nine cars in each. The heats will consist of 25 laps, and the top four finishers in each race will advance straight to the main event. Every driver that doesn't advance will be entered into two last-chance qualifying races. The LCQs will be 50 laps each, and the top three in each race will advance to the feature. The 23rd and final starting spot in the main event will be awarded to the highest points finisher from the 2021 season that hasn't already earned their starting position. Which means Kyle Larson is the only driver who has a guaranteed spot in the main event. The main event will feature 150 laps and a mid-race break with a performance from Ice Cube. The format is a nod to Saturday night short track racing across the country. And colleague racing's Justin Haley thinks fans will love it. Clash is going to be something that the fans are going to appreciate. Um, we really haven't seen like a Saturday night show where you got to race your way in. Um, like I'll, I'll do in Volusia um, here in a few weeks when I modify. Just, you know, you got to race your way in. There's 36 cars and 23 make it. So um, the LCQ is, is going to be fun to watch. And hopefully we're not a part of it. But um, I think the fans will appreciate that. I think the fans will appreciate the aggression um, of the drivers trying to make the show. NASCAR's shortest track is currently a half mile, meaning that this track is cutting that distance in half. Martin Truix Jr. says this is the smallest track he's ever raced a stock car on. Well, I, I expect it to be a little bit crazy. I mean, the track is very small. <laughs> it's, um, I don't, I've never raced a stock car on a track this small, ever. Um, I actually have never driven any, any race car, period, on a track this small, <laughs> other than go-karts. So, it's going to be interesting. I think, I, I feel like a lot of contact, a lot of rubbing, uh, a lot of tire marks, Unfortunately, you know, you got the, the new composite bodies and we'll see what kind of impact they can handle. <laughs> I, I think it's going to be it's going to be pretty crazy. So some drivers have experience at Winston-Salem, North Carolina's Bowman Gray Stadium, which they say is the closest comparison to what we'll see on Sunday. Yeah, I mean, I've raced Bowman Gray uh, when I was younger in a legend car and uh, Bandolero and, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, so it'll be a little pretty similar to that. I mean, it's about the same size as Bowman Gray and um, a little bit bigger car. But, uh, you know, I think it's a very uh, unique opportunity. I mean, that's that's pretty special to be able to go to the L.A. Coliseum, you know, where they've had the Olympics and things like that and throw asphalt on it and, and go have a race. You know, it's it's a it's a could be a really cool market. Going and tearing up the car in the clash, it's not going to help me win the clash. So I need to keep it clean. I'm not going out just to bulldoze around and just 
full-on drive backwards like Bowman Gray, right? Like, I'm not going to knock the radiator out of it just because somebody cuts me off and just to, just to get even. Um, we got to be smart, and it's still a cup series. It's still high-level racing, just basically at Bowman Gray, which I'd like to race there, too. With the tight confines, we are sure to see some beating and banging along with some bruised egos. That should deliver the start of some new rivalries and maybe a reigniting of some of last year's biggest feuds. Bowman will not quit. He pounds it. Oh, he hits Hamlin. Danny Hamlin spins in turn four. Now here on the front straightaway, Denny Hamlin has slid in front of Alex Bowman. Bowman's coming up to try to celebrate. Denny Hamlin will come up and try to run into the nose of the Alex Bowman car. Bowman's the one that wrecked Hamlin. All eyes will be on the 48 and 11 this weekend, and neither Alex Bowman nor Denny Hamlin is ready to call their feud over. I got tired of not, you know, getting taken out at the end of these races that I should be winning, and and there's not anything I can do about it. Um, but you know, when I talked to Chase, when I talked to Alex, it, to me, it just was like you know, it seemed like they felt at times that the win was bigger for them than it would be for me, which is just not the case. You know, there's a lot of implications both ways. And so we just, you know, me personally, you just want to be raced as fair as you possibly can. And and we all make mistakes. I mean, we all do. Obviously, Martinsville was a mistake. I didn't mean to get loose underneath him. And just like the two times he got loose under me and crashed me, it was mistakes. But, um, you know, if he's going to try to retaliate, I'm I'm still not cool with a lot of things that he said so um i don't know i don't think it's going to be an ongoing thing um but i guess we'll just have to wait and see one thing is for sure we are in for an eventful debut of nascar's next gen race car and the 2022 season in the city of angels Thank you, Kyle. I think everyone is curious about how this race is going to play out. It's going to be a ton of fun for the fans, that's for sure, and a ton of fun for all of you listening here on the Motor Racing Network. We'll have coverage coming up for you this weekend. We'll hit our broadcast schedule later in the show. You can always get it at MRN.com. Coming up, we'll do a dive into the history of the Los Angeles Coliseum, and later, previous Clash winner Eric Jones will stop by. This is NASCAR Live. Now, back to Mike Bagley. We continue on this week's NASCAR Live. We've talked about NASCAR's history of racing at stadiums ahead of this weekend's race at the Los Angeles Coliseum. But the Coliseum isn't just a stadium. It has a very rich history of its own, which makes NASCAR's presence there all the more important. Here with a history of the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum is our very own Californian, Dan Hubbard. While this Sunday's Bushlight Clash is NASCAR's first trip to the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, there is a reason why the stadium is affectionately known as the greatest stadium in the world. Construction on the stadium actually began 100 years ago in 1921, with the stadium opening in 1923. Construction actually cost less than $1 million, which is a bargain for a stadium, even with today's inflated dollar. The inaugural game at the Coliseum was a football game between Pomona College and the USC Trojans. USC won that first game 23 to 7 and still to this day play all of their home games at the Coliseum. In the early days of the stadium, USC's biggest rival UCLA also played their home games at the 
Coliseum before moving to the Rose Bowl in 1982. As you could probably tell from the huge torch at one end of the stadium, the Coliseum has a rich history when it comes to the Olympics. The stadium first hosted the Summer Games in 1932. The Games came back to the Coliseum in 1984 and will again host the Summer Olympics in 2028. When that happens, the stadium will be the first in the world to host the Summer Games on three separate occasions. The history of the Coliseum is rich in college football and the Olympics, but it also holds a huge piece of professional football history. The stadium first hosted NFL games in 1946 when the Cleveland Browns relocated to L.A. and were renamed the Rams. The Rams played at the Coliseum until 1980 and returned home to the Coliseum in 2016 and played there until their current home, SoFi Stadium, was completed. After the Rams skipped town, the Raiders moved in. The Coliseum was home base for the glory days of the Raiders from 1982 to 1984, including their iconic 1983 season, which ended in the franchise's third and most recent world championship. Oh yeah, you know that little event called the Super Bowl? The Coliseum hosted the first one in 1967 when Vince Lombardi, Bart Starr, and the Green Bay Packers defeated the Kansas City Chiefs. The stadium also hosted Super Bowl VII, which is historic because it's where the Miami Dolphins completed the only perfect season in NFL history by defeating the Washington football team 14-7. The Coliseum hasn't just hosted football's biggest events. It's also been home to baseball's World Series. Most people instantly think of Dodger Stadium when it comes to baseball in L.A., but when the Brooklyn Dodgers originally moved to the West Coast, they played in the Coliseum. The Dodgers played there from 1958 to 1962, including when they won the 1959 World Series. Baseball returned to the Coliseum in 2008 for an exhibition game between the Dodgers and the Boston Red Sox and set a Guinness World Record for attendance at a baseball game with 115,300. So, America's pastime? Check. American football? Check. The world's biggest game? Check that as well. The Coliseum also hosted more games for the U.S. men's national soccer team than any other stadium with 22. The Coliseum has also played host to Mexico's national team a whopping 86 times. The stadium has also hosted some of the most iconic names in music, like U2, The Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen, and more. The Coliseum has also seen the Pope, the Billy Graham Crusade, and speeches from presidents, including John F. Kennedy. With all that history, it begs the question, is NASCAR's trip to the Coliseum the only connection the stadium has to motorsports? Well, the surprising answer to that question is no. While this will be the first time stock cars race there, motorcycles owe a lot to the Coliseum. In 1972, the stadium hosted the Super Bowl of Motocross. It was the first motocross race to take place in a stadium and spawned what we now know as Supercross. Evil Knievel also performed one of his biggest stunts at the Coliseum when he launched from the top of the stadium and jumped over 50 stacked cars. 36 teams will compete this weekend, but only one driver will make history by becoming the first Bush Light Clash champion at the L.A. Memorial Coliseum. Oh, this weekend's race is going to be special. It's going to be fantastic to see cars on track inside of the L.A. Coliseum. And think about all the other events and all the moments that have happened inside of those confines. Wow. It's going to be spectacular. Coming up, Eric Jones talks with Steve Post as he's about to start his second season with Petty GMS Motorsports. And later, we'll revisit the 2011 Daytona 500. This is NASCAR Live. Now, back to Mike Bagley. 
Welcome back to NASCAR Live. The clash has been good to Eric Jones over the years. He won in dramatic fashion two years ago. And while he didn't score a win in his first season with Richard Petty Motorsports in 2021, this season is going to be different. In the offseason, Richard Petty Motorsports merged with GMS Racing to form Petty GMS Motorsports. Eric now has a teammate in Ty Dillon who brings experience to the table and GMS has a rich history of success in the truck series, even in the Arca Menard series. And they're going to be hungry to bring those successes to the NASCAR Cup Series. Steve Post is back and he chatted with Eric Jones recently and got his thoughts on where he is headed into 2022. Here comes Newman and company up the back straightaway for the final time. Looks in the rearview mirror. They begin to flank out. Dylan looks outside, looks inside. Dylan squeezing down low. Jones topside. Three wide for the lead in three. The Toyotas have hooked up on the back straightaway. Eric Jones and Denny Hamlin, and they go to the front of the field in turn number four. It's Jones by a car length over Hamlin off the corner. His teammate behind him, Eric Jones, leads. The front of his race car is missing. Checkered flag in the air. Eric Jones by half a car length will win the 42nd annual Bush Clash at Daytona. Same team, new team. I mean, you're in a weird situation with GMS Petty or Petty GMS Racing. Um, how are things How are things shaking out for you guys this year? Yeah, it's, uh, it is an interesting situation. You know, RPM is, is pretty much stayed together. A lot of the same people, but now we're obviously merged with, with GMS. But um, really happy how it's all come together. Uh, happy how the mergers went and, and what I think it's going to look like for the rest of the season with the resources that we're going to have with GMS. So, uh, excited just to get going. You know, looking forward to the season and getting back to the racetrack and uh, seeing what uh, what it's going to be like, new crew chief and everything. And so there's a lot of a lot of newness, but a lot of excitement as well. Getting acquainted with Dave Lenz, uh, one of the really great Xfinity Series crew chiefs, a lot of success. What has that been like? It's been good. You know, Dave um, has a lot of attributes that I was looking for in a crew chief, and it, it was something we got done before the merger. Um, but coming into GMS, I think he's looking forward to that and. It was a lot of work to get Dave over there, but he was looking to make the move to the Cup Series and um, was happy we could get the deal done and, and get him signed up. So I think he's going to do a great job. He's done a great job so far at the tests we've done and been at, um, but just really looking forward to getting in a race situation. With, you know, it's, it's so much easier to start to build that camaraderie and um, that teamwork when you're at the track and live and in action. So excited to get that going. Young Eric Jones out in front of the field, across the line. He'll score the win at Daytona. Has the testing, though, been beneficial with a new combination? To, because most years we don't have all this testing. Yeah, it has for sure. It's been weird to do all the testing. You know, so many years now we've done really nothing in the offseason other than maybe one test. Um, so it's been a little bit different. The offseason has been really busy, but I, I think we've learned a ton over these tests that we've done so far between Charlotte, Daytona, going to Phoenix next. Um, we've learned lots about the car, made it a lot better, drive a lot better, made it a lot faster, but... Uh, uh, overall, it's uh, it's been good. What can you tell me about the car? How, what's what what stands out about that race car? You know, it's just everything's different. I mean, number one, but uh, number two, it's interesting when you go to the track and you know I come in, tell them how the car is driving, and you think right off the bat, what adjustment would you make with the old car? You almost can't do any of those adjustments anymore. So it's kind of a whole new playbook, um, and and that's a big task for for the crew chiefs and for the engineers just to come up with big lists of things to try right and you know that's what the test is all about it's just things and to go through see what it does and figure out how the car reacts and responds to everything so you don't have really a lot of sim to rely on right now just because you don't have a lot of data from the car uh, so it's kind of a little bit of older school racing you know like um, like we grew up doing it um, you know just kind of trial and error and figuring it out 
The trial and error at Daytona, um, you guys captured a lot of attention because that car was uh, a little out of, out of shape coming down the straightaway. Is, is that just part of the process that we go through as we, we try to make these cars faster? Yeah, you know, it's just something to try. And uh, there was a whole list of things we wanted to go through and see what the car, how, how it would react, what it would do, if it was better, if it was worse. Um, so it was one of the things on the list we tried and uh, just happened to get uh, a lot of airtime for it. Um, but, you know, it's a test. You, you can kind of do whatever you want. And, and, and this is maybe something we're going to race. Probably not. <laughs> but, it, uh, you know, it's good for focus factor. We got a lot of good exposure on the, on the test. Um, Richard Petty Motorsports, uh, a single-car team up until this year, now going with, uh, with the GMS merger. Um, one of the benefits with, with Ty Dillon, a guy that's been around a little bit, coming over and just having that, that, that second team, the second data points, the second driver, the second everything, what are the advantages there? Yeah, I mean, it's really what you said, just having that extra data to go and, and sort through and look through is just a big advantage at the cup level. You know, being a single-car team does have its advantages in some ways, but uh, there is no checks and balances there. You know, you can go down a road and you don't know if it's right or wrong sometimes. Uh, when you have a teammate, you know, that's another crew chief, more engineers, just to bounce ideas off of and see kind of where you're going. And if you're struggling, you can look to them and see what they're doing and figure it out and vice versa. So um, I think it's beneficial for sure. I'm excited to get back to having a teammate uh, and being able to build and, and get our cars better together. The offseason, did you do anything? Did you get away? Did you have a, uh, what what'd you do during the offseason? It was busy. Um, I went and ran the Snowball Derby, went and ran the Governor's Cup in a late model. Um, so that was a lot of that was a lot of time right there between those two races. But uh, I did end up going home to Michigan for the holidays. Went up there for uh, for Christmas. My sister got married um, yeah, Thanksgiving weekend, so that was another weekend kind of uh, you know used up there. So my off season's been really busy between the testing and, and family stuff. There really hasn't been much of a time off, uh, but it's been a lot of fun and uh, you know getting to do all this stuff. Finally, your charity initiative, Read with Eric. I understand reading is important to you. I understand the whole concept of it. Where did that? Where did the concept come from? Because it's so unique, and it seems like it's really done well as well. Yeah, I've really enjoyed doing it, and it's got um, good traction. People that love to tune in and, and, and uh, join in on the readings. And you know, for me, it really started a couple of years ago when we were um, locked down for COVID initially, and in, in the racing, you know, we weren't racing at all. Um, we were trying to come up with stuff just to stay connected with fans and obviously I like to read and I was sharing books that I was reading just pictures of them and, and I was like you know we came up with the idea to, to read on Facebook live and obviously I can't sit there and read a whole novel uh, so it defaults kind of to kids books and I was like yeah that's, that's a cool idea and, and we started off and you know it just caught on and, and I enjoyed it and, and getting to now it was it was interesting at first we were having to find the books to read and, and now we get a lot of suggestions and people sending books in um, and, and we've partnered up with North Carolina Humanities now uh, and working with them through their reading initiative so it's really been cool to see the opportunities that have come from it and, uh, and how it's came along over the last couple of years. What's that like to have people sending you books and participating with you on that? That's, that has to be rewarding. It is, you know, just to see that people are, are that interested in it and, and especially kids are that interested in it. Uh, that's cool for me because as a kid I loved to read. You know, I wanted to be reading and, and it was something I did, you know, almost every day. And so to see that, you know, in kids now, obviously there's so much more out there, even than when I was a kid, to distract you and take your time upright. Um, but still to pick up a book and read it and see that today is pretty rewarding. With GMS and Petty Motorsports joining forces, 
this potentially could set Eric Jones and Richard Petty up for some nice success in 2022. We'll all have to wait and see how it unfolds. Coming up, we'll look back at the 2011 Daytona 500, and it was a big win for all involved. This is NASCAR Live. Now, back to Mike Bagley. We're about to head for the exits on this week's NASCAR Live. For a lot of fans, they can remember the 2011 Daytona 500 vividly. In our minds, it wasn't that long ago. It's actually been 11 years, which is crazy. Since that infamous win with Trevor Bain and the Wood Brothers, Kurt Becker walks us through that race and the historic win for one of NASCAR's most historic teams. 11 years ago, anticipation was especially high as a new NASCAR season approached. Teams were hoping they could end a half decade of dominance by Jimmy Johnson as the Hendrick Motorsports driver was coming off his fifth straight championship in 2010. The 2011 campaign began with the 53rd running of the Daytona 500. Johnson was quiet during the early portion of Speed Weeks, but Hendrick Motorsports was still in control as Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Jeff Gordon qualified on the front row. Some 182,000 fans filed into Daytona International Speedway for the Great American Race, which would feature a new twist known as tandem drafting. Every Daytona 500 has been special. This one could be the best one we've ever seen at this racetrack. Here they come down to the line. Hang on for 200 laps of excitement here at Daytona this afternoon. The Great American Race is underway and heading for turn one. Tandem drafting worked exactly how the term sounded. Drivers paired up in duos and ran bumper to bumper around the two and a half mile oval, switching who was leading and who was following every few laps to reduce the risk of an overheating engine. The system created some unlikely alliances pairing drivers of different ages and experience levels, who in many cases even drove for different manufacturers, with tandems of Kurt Bush and Regan Smith, as well as Mark Martin and A.J. Allmendinger, showing early speed. But even as Kurt Bush enjoyed success in the early going, his younger brother brought out the first caution. Oh, there's trouble. Kyle Busch spins. He collects uh, Michael Waltrip. All the way around goes Kyle, down to the apron. Waltrip continues on with minimal damage. Kyle Busch another time, three, four times, 360-degree spins for the M&M's Toyota. The race saw several names come and go atop the leaderboard in the early laps, with Dale Earnhardt Jr. eventually working his way into the top five after dropping from the front row to the rear of the field at the start because of a change to a backup car. Of course, the accident known as the big one is a storyline of seemingly every Daytona 500, and on this occasion, it would occur before the race had even reached the quarterway point. On lap 29, Michael Waltrip and David Rudiman got together and started what would ultimately become a 17-car pileup. Whoa, trouble. David Rudiman gets turned around right in front of half the field. He'll take Michael Waltrip and others as the crash. A massive crash continues in three. Greg Biffle's involved. Andy Lally is involved. Marcus Ambrose. Jimmy Johnson is involved. Jeff Gordon is involved. Brian Keselowski is involved. Everybody spinning down into the grasses. Everybody on the brakes going topside. A huge crash that started up in turn number three. That crash eliminated multiple contenders from the race, including three of the four Hendrick Motorsports cars, driven by Johnson, Gordon, and Mark Martin. The wreck created the need for many drivers to find new drafting partners, but the Ganassi racing duo of Jamie McMurray and Juan Pablo Montoya was an exception, as they were able to continue working together and took the 
the lead. Their bump drafting got a little too intense just past the halfway point, however, and Montoya was sent spinning. Trouble off turn number four. One car snaps around. I believe that is a machine of one Pablo Montoya who spun coming off of turn number four. Now he is headed to pit road. Montoya avoided major damage and became a factor again in the closing stages of the race. The second half of the event also included a revolving door at the front of the pack. Ultimately, the race would feature 74 lead changes among 22 drivers. As the race drew toward conclusion, a Clint Boyer crash with less than three laps to go forced the first attempt at a green-white checkered finish. A surprising pair of young drivers, David Reagan and Trevor Bain, had stormed their way to the front, but on the ensuing restart, Reagan made a mistake that would cost him a shot at his first career victory. And another incident forced another attempt at a green-white checkered finish. But here we go. Green is going in the air for the Daytona 500, and immediately David Reagan crosses over, lines up in front of Trevor Bain. The wrecking further back. Ryan Newman gets turned into the outside wall. He clips Dale Jr. Jr. makes contact with the wall. Truex is there. He's trying to avoid and does as Jr. made contact with the outside wall. He came back to the bottom, then back to the outside wall, and now coast nose first down onto the apron, and that right front is torn to pieces on the Amp Energy Chevrolet for Dale Earnhardt Jr. Trouble at the back of the pack and trouble at the front of the pack as well. Trevor Bain has just lost his drafting partner, David Reagan. Crossed over too soon at the drop of the green flag, and that'll be a costly me- a mistake for that young man. So Trevor Bain's going to be up there all alone. That set up a showdown on the final restart involving Bain, just 20 years of age and making his second career start, and veterans Bobby Labonte and Kurt Busch, who were looking to win the 500 for the first time. Bain handled the pressure well, but he still had to avoid a late charge by Carl Edwards and David Gilliland on the final lap. Here come Carl Edwards to the bottom. He's got drafting help. He's up to fourth. He's up to third. Here comes Carl Edwards as Bain leads to three. Something's got to give. Here comes Carl Edwards. He's got momentum. David Gilliland giving him a shove to the inside of Labonte. Now Trevor Bain will cross over the final time off four. Trevor Bain playing defense. He's out in front at age 20. He's going to win the 53rd Daytona 500. Trevor Bain gets the win for the Wood Brothers. I was just saying there's got to be something go wrong. I mean, there's no way that we're leading the Daytona 500 coming out of turn four. I mean, it's just not possible. And then we were still leading across the checker flag. So uh, hopefully I don't wake up from this because this is uh, insane. The victory made Bain the youngest driver to ever hoist the Harley J. Earl Trophy. The win was also hugely popular in the garage as the historic Wood Brothers team scored its fifth Daytona 500 victory and its first Cup Series win in nearly 10 years. The organization is now on a quest for its 100th career triumph. Could they recapture that same magic more than a decade later, this time with a 21-year-old at the wheel? We will find out in a few short weeks when Harrison Burton pilots the 21 car in the 64th running of the Great American Race. 11 years ago, that famed number 21 car went to victory lane at the World Center of Racing. Kurt, thank you so much for that flashback. Folks, that's all the time we have for today. We'd like to thank Kyle Busch and Eric Jones for joining us. Don't forget, join us for NASCAR Live Race Day coming up 2.30 p.m. Eastern from the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. For the rest of the MRN crew, I'm Mike Bagley. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll chat with you Sunday from L.A. and right here next week on NASCAR Live. Until then, so long, everybody. 
NASCAR Live is a production of the Motor Racing Network with studios in Concord, North Carolina, and was brought to you by Blue Emu Maximum Pain Relief, the official pain relief cream of the Motor Racing Network. Blue Emu is family-owned and manufactured here in America. It works fast, and you won't stink. Today's broadcast was produced by Alexa Henrian and Julian Council. The executive producer for MRN is Ryan Horn. Remember to visit MRN.com for all of the latest news and information. NASCAR Live is produced under an exclusive license with NASCAR. Any use of the accounts or descriptions contained in this broadcast must be with the express written permission of NASCAR and the Motor Racing Network. Buying a house can feel like you're going 200 miles per hour in bumper-to-bumper traffic with a dirty windshield and the sun in your eyes. Ruoff Mortgage has the technology, expert staff, and resources to simplify the process while speeding up the time it takes to get clear to close. So while getting a loan can seem intimidating, Ruoff Mortgage will have you opening the door to your new home fast and stress-free. Visit Ruoff.com to learn more. That's Ruoff.com.